0: Gresham College presents The World's Local Religion by Professor Alec Ryrie. So good afternoon, ladies and gents. Welcome to this, the third of this series of lectures on the modern history of Protestant Christianity. Protestantism began as a European religion almost five centuries ago, and it has nowadays become a global one. If we'd been telling the story of how that came about, that process of of globalisation, if we'd been telling that story 50 years ago, we would have told a story that was chiefly about missionaries and about empires. We would have noticed that until the 18th century, Protestants were very bad at spreading their faith beyond their own culture. Partly because they tended to insist that converts should absorb and conform to European norms. The idea of converting people and civilising them went hand in hand. We'd also have understood, thinking about this 50 years ago, that the change in the tempo and the success of Protestant mission during the 18th and especially the 19th and early 20th centuries was part of the story of European imperialism in which imperial success at imposing European norms onto societies across the world meant that European religion could piggyback on the process. And if we'd been looking at this from that perspective of half a century ago, we'd sensibly have been concluding that that process was probably over. As the European empires were collapsing or dissolving themselves... As nationalist movements across what was then being referred to as the Third World were marginalizing or expelling missionaries and setting up avowedly secular states, the likeliest future seemed that European Christianity, both Protestant and Catholic, would be shrugged off as colonial rule itself had been. And it has spectacularly failed to happen that way. Instead, as colonial empires have faded away, Christianity has embedded itself across the planet and racked up unprecedented numerical growth. The numbers are are tricky and in themselves not terribly helpful. But on any showing, more than half of Africa's population are now Christians. That share is still rising. And of those, well over half are Protestants, if we define Protestantism broadly, as I think we must. In Asia where, of course, more than half of the human race lives. The picture is patchier, but there has been spectacular growth in Korea and, more recently, in China. Two very important examples to which I'll be returning later. Latin America's case is different. Latin America, of course, was colonised by Europeans far earlier and was held for far longer. And Catholicism has become deeply ingrained there. But in the past half-century, there's been an explosion of Protestantism in that region. A multi-country survey in 2014 suggested that at that date 19% of the population of Latin America are Protestants, rising to 26% in Brazil and over 40% in much of Central America. And more than half of these people are converts. They weren't raised as Protestants. The global explosion of Christianity in general and of Protestantism in particular is one of the stories of our times. And it's now clear that this is at least not in any straightforward sense a colonial imposition. It began that way. But the theme of Protestantism's growth around the world has been its success in turning itself into the world's local religion, adapting promiscuously to whatever situation it finds itself in. And in this lecture, I want to take a tour of some of those adaptations with you. We'll meet some European and American missionaries along the way, but I'm going to be focusing instead on how peoples all over the world have picked up Protestant Christianity and run with it. And we'll finish by looking at some of the consequences of that. Take, for example, maybe the most unpromising early mission field of all of them, Southern Africa, where the Dutch colonists at the Cape of Good Hope quickly concluded that the Khoikhoi people, whom one Protestant minister called the most savage, stupid, and filthy heathens I had ever met, could not be converted. Another minister said that this was because they are so used to running around wild that they can't live in subjection to us. Notice how conversion and subjection are assumed to go together. But, in 1737, the Moravian. Church, a revivalist sect, which was one of the most prolific sources of early Protestant missions, sent a young German named Georg Schmidt to South Africa. He bought a farm some 20 miles east of Cape Town, which he named Ganan- Ganadenda. I think that's how you pronounce it. And he established a commune there, gathering a group of Khoikhoi, who uh, eventually numbered 28. In 1741, he baptized five of them in a nearby river. That scandalised the, the Dutch church authorities of the colony. He came under, local, uh, under pressure from the church. He got some backing from the governor but was felt isolated. It was made clear that nobody was going to be allowed to come to join him. And in 1743, worn down by this conflict, Schmidt returned to Europe. Nobody was allowed to replace him. As a parting gift, he gave his Dutch New Testament to a girl from the community whom he'd baptised, a six-year-old girl who was was baptised with the name Magdalena. Forty-nine years later, in 1792, Moravian missionaries were finally able to return to Ganadendal. And when they arrived on Christmas Eve, they were greeted by the now elderly Magdalena, who unwrapped her treasured Bible from its sheepskin case. Her failing eyesight meant that she could no longer read herself, But she had a young woman read the story of the Magi's journey to Bethlehem for the newcomers. The community had, it turned out, endured in isolation for half a century, meeting to pray under the pear tree that Schmidt had planted, teaching their children to read Dutch. The visitors' appearance, they said, didn't surprise them because God had told them in their dreams to expect their return soon. Now, we may suspect that that's a story that's grown in the telling. But if nothing else, it's an early sign that the region's peoples could quickly make Protestantism their own. From the 1790s onwards, missionaries poured into South Africa, establishing farmsteads, many of them modelled on Gennadendal, and fanning out across and beyond the rapidly expanding territory of the Cape Colony. From the beginning, these missionaries reported intense and dramatic conversions amongst the peoples they preached to. Their preaching resonated with the existing spiritual practices of the region in sometimes unexpected ways. The, the Christian sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist made self-evident sense to people for whom water and blood had long-standing religious significance. We find swiftly stories of African Christians interpreting dreams, singing, displaying vivid emotion in prayer, their cries sometimes drowning out preacher's voices. A German missionary in 1816 reported that my hearers were drowned in tears, others were unable to sit or stand, and that once his service was over, they would withdraw together into a field to pray. Their unconverted neighbours, he said, tended to despise these displays. They thought it was shameful for adults to weep. The missionaries themselves, this is one of the persistent features of these accounts, the missionaries themselves are taken aback, not truly expecting their ministry to have succeeded. Robert Moffat, who was a a Scots missionary with the Tswana people, wrote that when a revival struck in 1829 we were taken by surprise. Although it was impossible to keep either order or silence, a deep impression of the divine presence was felt. They sang till late hour and before morning dawned they would assemble again at some house of worship before going to labour. And Moffat had no doubt this was authentic. In fact, he was a little alarmed by it. He wanted to channel it into what he saw as a more mature, by which of course he meant a more Scottish faith. Um, and He remained with the Tswana for a total of 49 years. But another Scot, the ages best known explorer missionary, David Livingstone, disagreed with Moffat's approach. He argued that as soon as what he called a native church was formed, it should be left to its own devices, rather than being infantilized by continued missionary support. He wrote, we have great confidence in the essential vigor of Christianity, which blooms in imperishable youth wherever it's untrammeled by the wisdom of men. Sow the seed and it never dies. Now, of course, that's an article of faith. It's not a sober observation. But there was apparently evidence for it in 19th century South Africa. Take, for example, a pioneering tour to the Koza of the Eastern Cape, which one early missionary undertook in 1800 to 1. No apparent results from it at all, nor indeed were there by the time the missionary himself died 10 years later. It's only around 1815 that a man named Nsikana, a high-born but outcast Koza singer, who had heard one of the sermons, experienced a conversion. Following a vision in which he saw a single bright sunray strike the side of his prize ox, he found himself inspired to begin humming and then chanting early versions of what would become the first Koza language Christian hymns. He set himself against a millenarian Koza prophet ...who was attempting to mobilise his people for war against the encroaching Europeans... ...with promises of magical assistance, that he'd be able to protect them from bullets. And Sikana accused this prophet of self-aggrandizement and of lying to the people... ...and preached repentance and reconciliation instead. And he attracted a substantial multi-ethnic following. The standard narrative of South African church history focuses on the European-led denominations and traces the origins of what are usually called African independent churches, only to the late 19th century. But Nsikana's and, and indeed Magdalena's witness, suggests that the phenomenon of Africans forming their own Protestant groups is almost as old as Southern African Protestantism itself. What distinguishes the first of classic independent church, which was the, the Tembu Church founded by Nehemiah, Nehemiah tile in 1884, what distinguishes that group is that it broke off from an existing European denomination. Tile was a Methodist evangelist amongst his own Tembu people on this area of the, the eastern frontier of the Cape province, as it then was. But he broke with his white superiors over what they saw as his unacceptable meddling in politics. His aim was to help the Tembu's paramount chief to negotiate an independent British protectorate to be directly under the British crown rather than subject to the Cape Colony. And in order to cement that chief's authority uh, to boost his credibility with the British and also, incidentally, to save his people's souls, he proposed to establish a state church in Tembuland, which would be headed by that paramount chief very much as the Church of England was headed by Queen Victoria. It didn't last. The British colonial establishment swiftly decided that this whole project was itself seditious and when Thiele himself died in 1891 the chief admitted defeat and returned to Orthodox Methodism. But that example did help to inspire a series of other breakaway African-led churches. Some of them remaining fully independent, some of them then negotiating links with the black churches of the United States of America although that was not always a a happy experience. Um, The the man in the middle here is a South African named James M. Duane, uh, who is here in Columbus, Ohio, uh, being received by the bishops of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, He was consecrated as a bishop by them, but came to feel almost the same level of colonial auteur from his black American superiors as he had from his white British ones. He ended up returning to South Africa and being ordained as an Anglican and becoming head of a new autonomous Order of Ethiopia within South Africa's Anglican Church. That's an order which endured until 1999 when it was refounded as a fully independent Ethiopian Episcopal Church and Duame's grandson became its first bishop. The missionary establishment generally disliked these sorts of independent startups. Not least because when disgruntled African ministers left to set up shop on their own, they usually took their congregations with them, leaving the missionaries sore on the hook for maintaining empty churches and often accusing their former brethren of pride or greed. Alongside these mere jealousies were more substantial worries. Independent churches, they thought, might veer into unorthodoxy, whether by incorporating elements of traditional African religions or by forming personality cults around messianic leaders. And more alarmingly still, given that independent churches originated in a rejection of white religious authority, they might also be vehicles for political radicalism. But from the perspective of a century later, things look rather different. In South Africa, as across much of the rest of the continent, it's been independent churches which have been the most powerful engines of Christian growth. Heterodoxy, personality cults, well, yes, there there has been some of that, although it's liable to be exaggerated. And as for being politically subversive, well, we'll come back to that, but for now, let's just say it hasn't exactly worked out the way those fretting missionaries feared. Most of these modern African independent churches, and indeed many of the Protestants I'll be discussing worldwide for the rest of the lecture, are what we can rather loosely call Pentecostal, a a word which I should say I'm using to mean not only churches like the Assemblies of God, which place a central importance on the the experience of speaking in tongues or glossolalia, but on a a wider phenomenon of ecstatic, experiential, spirit-centered Protestantism. So there are many African churches in particular which I would want to class as Pentecostal in which tongue speaking is unusual, but there may be prophecy, possessions and exorcisms, fainting, trembling, weeping, and there will almost certainly be miraculous healing. The 2014 survey of Latin America that I mentioned suggests that well over half of all Protestants in Latin America, and it rises to over 70% in Brazil, Colombia, and Nicaragua, Well over half of all Protestants claim to have witnessed a miraculous healing. One of the sparks for Pentecostal growth in 1980s Nicaragua was the story of a Sandinista soldier who was raised from the dead in the Matagalpa region in 1983 or 84. One study of South Africa's Zion Christian Church, which is one of the biggest independent churches in the country, Um, this this study found that every single believer who was questioned claimed to have witnessed a miraculous healing. There are a great many individual stories about these. The the longing for and faith in divine healing is, of course, partly a matter of simple, practical need, not least in countries where the medical systems leave something to be desired. But healing... I think it's important to stress, is not in this sense merely a medical transaction. It's a spiritual event whose inner blessing can be overwhelming even if the bodily effects turn out to be disappointing or illusory. The bodily need can be what leads to an inner experience of the Holy Spirit, which turns out to be apparently as transformative as the experience of speaking in tongues or of prophesying. So if the healing turns out to be of no lasting medical benefit or if the tongues turn out to be an incomprehensible babble rather than an unknown human language, that's almost beside the point. The inner experience itself is life-changing regardless of the outward manifestation. Now, as I said, Pentecostalism is a phenomenon that we associate historically with the United States in the first decade of the 20th century, and for good reason. But it's always been more plural and more global than that. Take, for example, the case of Pandita Ramabai, who came to England from her native India as a young widow in the 1880s. She converted to Christianity soon after her arrival and was baptised as a member of the Church of England. She swiftly became a formidable campaigner for Indian nationalist causes in general and for women's rights in particular, and after a speaking tour of the United States, returned to India to found a refuge for widows, which was set up um, initially near, near Bombay, and then moved to Pune in 1890. To begin with, this was a secular venture. But in 1894, Ramabai had what she called a new experience of God's power, the personal presence of the Holy Spirit in me. The word Pentecostal wasn't yet in general use, but her description fits the pattern pretty closely. She refounded her refuge, gave it a new name, Mukti, Salvation, and it was now something which she saw explicitly as an evangelical project. When news of the great Welsh revival of 1904 1905 reached her, Ramai sent her American sidekick, Minnie Abrams, and her own daughter to go to Wales, to see what was happening there for themselves. And the two women then returned in January 1905, aglow with excitement. And on their advice, Ramabai set up daily early morning meetings in her refuge to pray for revival. After six months, the fire court, the revival that swept through her refuge, lasted for a year and a half, marked by long, ecstatic prayer meetings, miraculous healings, over a 1,000 baptisms, and around 700 young women going out as missionary preachers into the surrounding communities. A few months into this, some of the community at Mukti also began to speak in tongues. But this is before tongue speaking started in Los Angeles. Ramabai was characteristically robust in denying that this was merely a matter of hysterical women, as the accusation was made. I wish she wrote that all of us could get this wonderful and divine hysteria. She insisted that the experience had left believers renewed in their moral character and empowered to pray and to spread the word. She devoted most of the rest of her life to translating the Bible into Marathi directly from the original languages. Her American disciple, Minnie Abrams, wrote a booklet describing these events which was read across the world. In particular, Abrams sent a copy to a former classmate of hers from Bible school who was now a Methodist missionary in Chile. And it was that report which sparked the beginning of Pentecostalism in Chile which became one of Protestantism's first Latin American strongholds. The same stories of the Welsh revival of 1945 were also being read enviously by missionaries, well all over the world but in particular by missionaries in Korea. One of the things that makes Korea such an interesting case is that it's the only example from this period of Christianity being the anti-colonial religion. Korea was at this point coming under Japanese dominance and many Koreans hoped, vainly as it turned out, that America might defend their independence. There had been a trickle of converts and much interest in and welcome towards Christians. But the missionaries didn't want adherents who found Christianity politically useful or materially beneficial. They wanted a revival. A few years of concerted prayer for one culminated in a 10-day-long church conference planned in Pyongyang, now the capital of North Korea, in early 1907, a meeting there on the 6th of January, where 1,500 Korean Christians were present, turned into an extraordinary evening of public penance. One astonished missionary wrote, man after man would, this was an all-male meeting, there, was a, 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 there were separate meetings for men and women, man after man would rise, confess his sin, break down, weep, then throw himself on the floor and beat the floor with his fists in a perfect agony of conviction." They'd break out into uncontrollable weeping. We would all weep together. We couldn't help it. The following night, it was more so. Every human being, every sin a human being can commit was publicly confessed that night. Pale, trembling with emotion, in agony of mind and body, guilty souls standing in the white light of their judgment saw themselves as God saw them. The scorn of men, the penalty of the law, even death itself seemed of small consequences if only God forgave. When the conference finally broke up, the revival rippled out across the country, not least through its mission schools. 30,000 Koreans applied for baptism that year. This is what one missionary said about these events, an American. He said, until this year, till 1907, I was more or less bound by that contemptible notion that East is East and West, West, and there can be no real affinity or common meeting ground between them. With others, I had said the Korean would never have a religious experience such as the West has. These revivals have taught me that the Korean is at heart and in all fundamental things at one with his brother of the West. To remove the spectacles of pervasive racism with which Westerners of this generation viewed the world was remarkably difficult. But this man at least felt that his eyes had been opened. He was so impressed by the piety that he'd seen that he now thought that the East not only has many things but profound things to teach the West. And until we learn these things, we will not know the full-orbed gospel of Christ. After this, control of the Korean church rapidly transferred from missionaries to Korean leadership. The last non-Korean moderator of the Presbyterian church, the biggest one, stepped down in 1919. And Korean Protestantism's distinctive features began to emerge. There's a, a, a marked apocalypticism. There are practices of memorizing and reciting large chunks of the Bible. One particular practice that emerged during 1907, which remains common in Korean churches down to the present, is unison prayer, in which all those present at a meeting stand and pray aloud at the same moment. Each person... ...standing and saying his or her own individual prayer. It's a sort of form of collective speaking in tongues... ...in which you can speak secrets aloud in company... ...but be confident that nobody's going to hear you. Um, and repentance is, is both highly individual but, but corporate as well. 1907 is also the year when the first self-styled symbogium... ...or full gospel or pure gospel church was founded in Korea... With a Pentecostal style emphasis on healing and on God's love being made real in this life. Many churches have taken on that label since, but it's become associated above all with this one, the Yoido Full Gospel Church in Seoul. This is the largest single congregation on the planet. Um, it, it, the membership figure hovers somewhere around 800,000. This is just the central hall. There are dozens of others joined in, participating in the same service by CCTV. It's a church that was founded in a tent by a pair of penniless seminarians in 1958. And by their account, it's been based from the beginning on their highly distinctive practices of prayer. Choja Sil, the older of the pair, developed a practice which she called triple prayer, which is combining prayer in tongues, prayer while fasting, and prayer vigils lasting all night and she trained the church's cell groups in that practice. She died in 1989, but more than 80% of the church's cell group leaders still are women, and women outnumber men amongst the church's formal ministers, even as it restricts formal preaching and pastoring to men. Meanwhile, her younger colleague Cho Yonggi, who is now 80 and is still the leader of the church, had a slightly different practice, which he called specific prayer being led by God to pray for very particular outcomes. For example, early in his ministry, so the story goes, he prayed for a bicycle and a desk and a chair for his office. But God told him that this was not specific enough. And so he prayed for a desk out of Philippine mahogany, a chair with a steel frame and little wheels on the bottom, and a bicycle made in the United States of America. The following day, although troubled by doubt, he preached that he had actually received these things, which, as of that moment, he had not. His congregation, knowing that he was as destitute as they were, were incredulous, but by the time he was challenged to produce the objects, donors had provided them. Now, that's a preacher's tale. But Cho extended this principle far beyond bicycles. He would spend whole nights in prayer, such that by the morning he was too hoarse to speak, and passengers at the bus station near the tent church were complaining about his loud praying. He prayed for healing, fully expecting miracles, but also, crucially and notoriously, he prayed for worldly prosperity for himself and for his congregation. God, he has preached, doesn't want his people to be poor, but to enjoy what this world has to offer. And if they pray in faith for wealth, they will receive it. This so-called prosperity gospel has been much derided, not least by other Korean Protestants. But in its Korean context, it's not quite as crass as it looks. Never before in human history had any mass human society lifted more people out of poverty as fast as happened in South Korea in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. The full gospel church was founded amongst the urban destitute, dislocated people who didn't know that they stood on the cusp of an extraordinary economic boom. Even secular economists used the word miracle to describe what happened in Korea in these years. The prosperity for which these uprooted city workers prayed poured down on them. How could they not thank God for the blessings they were receiving? At the same time, a different but weirdly parallel story was unfolding in Korea's giant neighbor. China had attracted more attention from missionaries than any other single country in the 19th century. By 1949, when China came under communist rule, Chinese Christianity was highly visible, with its strongest presence in the cities, and it was making a transition from missionary leadership and support to indigenous control. But it still had a long way to go. It was also strongly associated with the defeated nationalist regime of Chiang Kai-shek, who had himself been baptised Protestant in 1930, but whose conversion, like many others, seemed in retrospect to be about convenience and political positioning. The new communist regime saw Christianity as doubly doomed, both as a matter of basic Marxist principle, in which religion's destiny was to wither, and also in the particular Chinese case, because Christianity was an imperialist imposition which a newly strong and unified China could at last shake off. And those two assumptions drove the communist regime's early policy. Christianity, like every other religion, only in this case a bit more so, would be fenced off and would then be allowed to quietly die in peace. As the new premier, Juen Lai, explains to Christian leaders in 1950, we think your belief's untrue and false. Therefore, if we're right, the people will reject them and your church will decay. If you're right, then the people will believe you, but as we are sure you are wrong, we are prepared for that risk. <laughs> that... Might sound like a fair and a bracing challenge, but in practice, during the 1950s and early 60s, the pressure that was placed on China's Protestant churches and the Catholic ones, but the two of that were very separately, steadily ratcheted up. All Protestants were expected to join a single so called United Front church organization. They were compelled to sever all foreign links to avoid proselytization of any kind or youth work of any kind, including baptizing, baptizing children. The numbers of churches were progressively restricted, such that in Shanghai, for example, the number of churches fell from over 200 in 1949 to 11 in 1965. The numbers of Clergy were also being capped. Getting time off work to attend church on a Sunday became difficult. Known Christians found their careers blocked. They were, of course, barred from joining the Communist Party. They might find themselves obliged to attend political study sessions on the evils of religion or to take part in denunciation meetings to denounce fellow believers as rightists. Church services tended to be cancelled at the last minute, but church buildings commandeered for political meetings. Any movements that refused to cooperate with this drift of policy were suppressed with some severity, and there were several leaders who endured long prison sentences. Unsurprisingly, under these circumstances, congregations shrank quickly. In 1963, there wasn't a single baptism in Shanghai, only four over the the following two years. And all of this, it turns out, was a prelude, With the onset of the Cultural Revolution in 1966, all Chinese churches and temples of any kind were closed, and they would remain so for 13 years. It looked as if China had successfully suppressed Christianity. But, as in Korea, the missionary-led churches were not the only story. I don't have time this afternoon to do more than glance at the weirdest and bloodiest episode of indigenous Chinese Christianity or quasi-Christianity, the so-called Taiping Heavenly Kingdom of the mid-19th century. This was a huge rising against the Qing Dynasty, led by a failed civil servant who had had a vision, read a first-generation Chinese Protestant tract, and concluded that he himself was Jesus' younger brother and had been called to establish a heavenly kingdom in which only God was the emperor, not some blasphemous human. He set up a theocratic regime which imposed a quasi-Christian, sort of quasi- modernization across a swathe of central China for much of the 1850s. And this was all enforced with apocalyptic severity. For example, any soldier who couldn't recite the Ten Commandments correctly was summarily beheaded. The movement was eventually suppressed by the Qing with reprisals on a genocidal scale. They wanted to wipe out all memory of it. The total death toll from the entire business is normally estimated around 20 million. This disaster left Chinese rulers from then to now with a conviction that religion in general and Christianity in particular are dangerous. Whether the Taiping helped to seed the spread of more orthodox Christianity in later decades is, well, more contentious. But it's at least striking that the areas of Christian strength in modern China map fairly closely, they're not perfectly, onto the regions once held by the Taiping. More to the point, early 20th century China had seen the emergence of a number of independent Chinese Churches, much as was happening in contemporary South Africa. From one man revivalist outfits through to more structured denominations like the True Jesus Church with its messianic leader, or the Jesus Family, um, that's a group which embraced strict communal living, all property being held together in its own villages in the 1930s, and, and for a while thought that it and the communists could rather get on. Um, or maybe most significantly, the group sometimes known as the Little Flock, which were derived loosely from the, the, the English brethren. They embraced a radical egalitarianism, were opposed to structures, forms, hierarchies of any kinds. All of these were, of course, suppressed with some ferocity by the communists in the 1950s. But they showed already that a genuinely popular indigenous Protestantism in China was possible, if the circumstances were right. And bizarrely, the right circumstances seem to have been those of the Cultural Revolution. One of the foremost historians of Chinese Christianity reckons that Protestant numbers, having been shrinking before 1966, increased five or sixfold during the period of the Cultural Revolution. It seems that even before the suppression of public worship in 1966, some believers were beginning to meet for worship and fellowship illegally in private in their homes. ...instead of in the the publicly established churches. And during the Cultural Revolution and its aftermath... ...these so-called house churches had the stage to themselves. It's not unusual for Protestants in modern China... ...to point out proudly the woods or mountains... ...where their predecessors gathered by night for worship... ...during the Cultural Revolution. These legends are, are, are doubtless true... ...but they maybe don't tell us very much. Strikingly, there's very little evidence... though, ...that this was happening in the cities which had been the heartland of of, of Chinese Protestantism. There may have been some house churches meeting in Nanjing, but oral history work undertaken in Shanghai has so far uncovered no evidence at all of underground Protestant groups meeting in that city during the Cultural cultural Revolution era. Merely, at best, two or three members of a single family sometimes meeting together in near silence to pray or to recite memorised portions of their now illegal Bibles. Urban believers could generally do no more than hunker down and wait for the world to change. But their rural brethren needed less patience. Communities of the supposedly suppressed True Jesus Church and Jesus Family began to swim back into being in these years. A formidable network of underground congregations emerged in Henan province in the early 1970s, which had once been a stronghold of the old Little Flock movement. Protestant growth in that province in the 1980s would spark official alarm about what its officials were calling Christianity fever. How was this recovery possible? Well, the Communist Party itself needs to take a good deal of the credit. All of those purges and denunciations do seem to have achieved their aim. They broke the association between Christianity and foreign imperialism. Kicking away the Chinese church's missionary crutches was not an act of kindness, but some at least of them discovered that they could still stand. And having already left missionaries behind, they were no longer tainted by association with them. One rural Protestant in 1996 told the researcher that she was surprised to learn that there were any Protestants in any country other than China. Now, she may have been an outlier. But when the party forced the Protestants to stop being imperialist running dogs, they did them a favor. The Cultural Revolution itself, I think, brought Protestants three blessings in, it should be said, a very convincing disguise. First of all, the movement's very brutality was counterproductive, as Maoism slowly lost credibility and its victims gained it. For the first time... In its history in China, Protestantism was unambiguously the religion of the oppressed rather than of aggressors or collaborators as it had so often been before. Secondly, the sheer chaos of the Cultural Revolution created new freedoms in practice, even as they were being denied in theory, especially in rural areas. The the onslaught of the Red Guards was terrifying, but it it wasn't very systematic. After all, a movement which explicitly targets the educated is unlikely to have a very effective bureaucracy by 1968 different red guard factions across china were close to civil war state administrative control in many areas was faltering in rural regions it turns out discrete believers could suddenly get away with quite a lot and thirdly in one critical sense the cultural revolution actively supported the protestant cause its attempt to build a new communist culture in china self-evidently failed but The effort to destroy existing Chinese cultural patterns, the explicit purpose of the movement, was another matter. A cultural scorched earth policy makes it easy for invasive species to take root, especially species whose seeds have already been widely distributed. As one disapproving Chinese academic put it in the 1980s, the Cultural Revolution caused a vacuum to form in the minds of many people, giving an opportunity for religion. And here, Protestantism had a unique advantage over its religious rivals, namely its weightlessness. Protestantism had no material requirements at all. It cost no money, it needed no professionals, and it left no evidence. It didn't even need Bibles, which was just as well because the Red Guards didn't show that there were none. Not as long as there were people who could remember the stories or shortwave radios which could pick up transmissions from Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the Philippines. What it needed was prayers and songs and faith and the name Jesus. One travelling exorcist and storyteller of the time, who was interviewed 30 years later, sounded almost wistful for those heroic days. She said that the miracles which had once flowed so plentifully had become far fewer, but that was only to be expected Now, she said, we don't need those works anymore. For now, we have the Bible, the hymn book, pastors who preach. At that time, we didn't have any of these. The only thing was that God spoke to you directly. The talk of miracles there, I think, is important. Plenty of testimonies from this period suggest that miracles, both the promise of them and the actual experience, were critical in attracting converts and convincing skeptics. And again, the prominence of women evangelists, is important. This rural Protestant resurgence was overwhelmingly female, over 70% on most accounts. And the Chinese church remains one of the most female dominated in the world. Two other themes in particular, it seems to me, stand out from, from these accounts. One of them is the ability of Protestant Christians to find a meaning, find meaning in and to draw strength from the fact of their suffering and their persecution. That is a long-standing Protestant specialty. It's one of the things which has always made Protestantism very hard to eradicate by force. Um, but it was particularly valuable in, in this context, and it remains significant in China down to the present. If you, the Chinese hymns are full of these sorts of meditations on suffering. The other thing I'd, I'd want to underline is the way that Protestantism in China came to be associated with outstanding moral rectitude in many areas, For example, one 1987 study of rural Protestant growth by a non-Christian Chinese sociologist commented on the moral transformation that he saw in converts, where he was seeing ancient quarrels being healed, families reunited, people abandoning, smoking and drinking, through to incidents like returning money to shopkeepers who've accidentally given too much change. People from all walks of life, he said, including numerous cadres, Communist Party members, despite the fact that they're non-believers by definition, all speak well of these people. This is the kind of reputation that Christians in a great many ages have aspired to, but have very rarely attained. One element of that reputation for high moral character that I I want to pull out, that's a strict ethic of non-resistance to their oppressors. Chinese churches have, at least until the the current crackdown that's that's been been happening in Wenzhou in the last 18 months or so, there's hints of something different happening there recently. But until recently, Chinese churches have tended to be punctilious in refusing to make any sort of open opposition or resistance to the regime, attempting instead to cooperate and assist the police as far as they can to avoid conflict of any kind. And that brings us to one final question which I'd like to finish with, drawing these various cases together. The cases of local, indigenized Protestantism around the world, which I've talked about, are extremely varied, but they have one thing in common. These are Protestants, all of whom have found themselves under politically repressive regimes of one sort or another. From the military dictatorships of Korea and Latin America in the 1960s, 70s and 80s to the communist regime in China and the apartheid state in South Africa. And with only a few exceptions, these indigenized local Protestant groups have deliberately and self-consciously refused to protest against their rulers. In Korea, under Park Chung-hee's dictatorship, One Presbyterian church joined with many Catholics in opposing the regime, developing what it called Minjung theology, a theology of the masses, as it was titled, analogous to the Catholic liberation theology that was emerging in Latin America. There was tremendous interest in Minjung theology from thinkers all around the world, strings of conferences, publications, and so forth, interest in it almost everywhere apart from within Korea itself. As a mass movement, it fell flat, that one church did succeed in increasing its membership by 11% in the late 1970s, but the much larger mainstream Presbyterian church grew by over 70% in the same period. And this was the church that was openly cozying up to the dictatorship. There's a similar story in South Africa. The theological opposition to apartheid came from the international denominations, such as the Anglicans and Methodists, and indeed one crucial wing of the Reformed Church. Most of the African independent churches were determinedly apolitical. Most, not all. Some of them even curried favour with the regime. In 1985, when the newly formed United Democratic Front was mobilizing civil society groups in South Africa of all kinds for an unprecedented wave of resistance to the apartheid regime, the African Zion Church invited President P.W. Bota to preach at its Easter 1985 service and invested him with a church honor. Likewise, Augusto Pinochet's 1973 coup in Chile was greeted with a joint declaration by 32 Chilean Pentecostal and Evangelical denominations stating that his coup was, I quote, God's answer to the prayers of all the believers who recognized that Marxism was the expression of satanic power. Pinochet became an active patron of the Pentecostal Methodist Church, He used their huge church in Santiago as the site of his annual national thanksgiving service, and he even asked its pastor to serve as a minister in his government. I should add that he refused. So the case for the prosecution, and it's it's often spoken about in these terms, is that modern indigenized global Protestantism is the dictator's friend that it's inherently politically right-wing, if indeed it's not actively supported by the CIA and by American denominational links. There is some truth in this. The moralising self-help ethos, which tends to see politics as inherently corrupt and as corrupting, and which looks to God's power rather than the state's power for salvation, is certainly an ethos which fits more easily with the modern centre-right than with the modern centre-left. Although it should be said that the racial egalitarianism, the anti-nationalism, and the strong line on domestic violence that is common to many of these communities would lean the other way. It's also true that most of these churches, as in the Chilean case, have long simply assumed that Marxism is their enemy, a feeling, of course, which was generally reciprocated. But I think this attempt to label them as right or, indeed, as left-wing... ...both misses the point and reveals a deeper oddity. An oddity about the modern world. Which is the widespread conviction... ...which has dominated European and European-derived societies... ...at least since the French Revolution... ...that politics fundamentally matters. The conviction that most human problems are susceptible of political solutions even when it doesn't produce utopianism, this pervasive gospel of politics tends to lead us to presume that there is moral value in political engagement, such that, for example, we regard the act of voting as virtuous, we regard taking an active interest in political affairs as virtuous, we applaud when vulnerable peoples across the world engage in political protest at considerable risk to themselves and with very uncertain prospects of achieving anything. Now, I should say I'm as much a believer in this gospel of politics as anybody else, but I do think it's worth noticing that in the longer context of human history, it's a rather odd way of thinking about the world. After all, most of what makes for real happiness in human lives has nothing to do with politics, and quite a lot of human misery is apolitical as well. The really radical, disturbing, and dangerous idea that modern indigenized Protestantism has been quietly promulgating is that political life is simply not very important and that it needs to be kept firmly in its place. China is, I think, the test case here. The so-called house churches there, this is a community whose numbers are, are impossible to judge but almost certainly exceed 50 million people. They have it appears the same political mood as indigenized Protestants elsewhere. That is, patriotic acceptance of the legitimacy of their government, punctilious avoidance of confrontation with and obedience to that government as far as is possible, a determined refusal to engage with political issues, and a wish to be left alone to run their own affairs and to call on God for help. The difference is that while many authoritarian regimes have welcomed that sort of apolitical withdrawal as useful to them, a proper one-party state can't. In that context, the very attempt to carve out an apolitical space is a subversive act. Our own age has produced two huge international religious movements which are comparable to each other in their timescale and their scope and their global reach. One of them jihadist or revolutionary Islam has attracted enormous political attention, chiefly, of course, because it is explicitly and centrally political, indeed military, in its ambitions. The other, renewalist or broad Pentecostal Protestantism, which has gone from a standing start to half a billion adherents in a century, has been much less noticed by the rest of the world, chiefly, I'd argue, because it's shown so little Interest in political affairs, but is instead focused on renewal and on resourcing the lives of individual believers and communities. I think it's unclear how long this can carry on, how long that political blind spot can be maintained. Certainly in parts of Africa, where these churches are now forming near or actual majorities, Protestants of this kind are being drawn into politics, and some of them are actively moving into politics. And of course, everybody wants their votes. But for the time being, at least, this does remain a local religion, not only in its variety, but also in the sense that it's focused on localities, communities, and individuals, even as it is quietly turning itself into the local religion of the whole world. Thank you. For more information, please go to the Gresham College website www.gresham.ac.uk